Hello, and welcome back to Cranbox Politics, where we strive to color outside the political lines. In this, the second episode of our podcast, and the second installment in the series on reproductive rights, we're going to cover the period from Roe v. Wade all the way to the Dobbs decision. It is important for me right now to take a pause before we dive into the details. You see, the reason that I wanted to come out with the discussion on reproductive rights is because it's one of the major issues of this year, 2022. It's a major political issue given the freshness that is the Dobbs decision. What I didn't realize is that this topic is so complex and so massive that it's nearly impossible to cover everything in three episodes. After the extensive research that I have done, I can honestly say that my personal views on this matter haven't changed. But my insight into the complexity of this issue and the discussions that have been had both on the left and on the right are far greater than what I initially thought and what I initially imagined. The biggest lesson came from the research that I did in the previous episode. The research that showed and demonstrated that reproductive rights, specifically abortion, was a common practice in early America, something that I didn't know and didn't comprehend at the time. It wasn't until I read through the history of America and discovered that the gradual decline of the practice came out of a societal shift, a societal mentality where we went from believing that life begins when the baby moves in the womb to life beginning at conception. And when we determined that life began at conception, we created rules in order to preserve that life that we as a society had deemed had begun at conception. And yet, in doing so, we took away from the rights, we took away from the privacy that women had long enjoyed from the birth of our nation until those laws were made. My research has confirmed, to me at least, what I've already known and what I've already suspected. And that is that our nation, like the people that make it up, the people that govern it, the people that lead it, it's imperfect. And sometimes decisions made with the best of intentions are made in a way that aren't considerate of the second and third order effects. They don't take into account the repercussions of those decisions. And while it may seem like a good idea at the time, at the end of the day, it's a bad decision. And we have to own those bad decisions and we have to own our understanding of our past so that we can make sure that we don't repeat those decisions in the future. We have to make sure that in making rules, in laws, in statutes, in order to preserve our way of life, we have to do so in a manner that will preserve our way of life. That effort is a complex and complicated effort. And 90% of the time, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to make mistakes as a nation. We're going to make mistakes as individuals. And we are going to have shortfalls. 
But the important thing is, is that we have to talk to one another and we have to communicate with one another and we have to have an open dialogue. And that is why Cranbox politics exists. We are here to foster that open dialogue. We are here to ensure that everyone has a seat at the table and that the lines that have been drawn in the past aren't permanent lines that we are forced to color within, but they are there so that we can see where we've been. You see, we chose Roe versus Wade to come out swinging. We chose abortion and reproductive rights in order to come out and say, we mean business. Because not only is this a major topic in the United States in the year 2022, but it has been a major topic of discussion and a major topic of debate since the birth of our nation. This has been an issue that has been ongoing since the founding fathers created the idea that is the great experiment of the United States of America. 50 years, 50 years of Supreme Court precedent is what was established and followed after the decision from Roe versus Wade. 50 years of rulings on privacy. And what I didn't know is that the decision in Roe versus Wade extended beyond the discussion about abortion. That the decision in Roe versus Wade is a blueprint for how certain other decisions have been made. Namely, the right for same-sex marriage. The right for access to contraception. Roe versus Wade was linked directly to the right for multiracial marriages. Every decision the Supreme Court makes is tied to another decision that it has made in the past. That's why the Supreme Court has a precedence rule. Now, I plan on getting further into a discussion about civics and the way that our government works in the future. So for now, let's go ahead and dig into the topic of Roe versus Wade. Let's take a look at that case. And I want to start by talking about a woman by the name of Jane Roe. You see, when I was doing my research, I didn't know that Jane Roe was a pseudonym. It was created in order to allow for the mother in the case to remain anonymous in public to prevent her from being targeted by pro-life individuals. You see, Jane Roe's real name was Norma McCorvey. Norma McCorvey was a divorcee who had become pregnant. She wanted to have an abortion, but instead of being able to do that, she was restricted because the abortion she wanted to have didn't meet the exception criteria of preservation of a woman's life set forth by Texas statute. So she sued, and she took her case all the way to the Supreme Court. The reality is that the decision was made long before the Supreme Court even decided, and that's because of the fact that a district court, a three-judge district court, ruled in favor of Norma McCorvey. Something I vaguely knew but didn't really register until I was doing my research is that Norma Corvey, while she championed the right to choose, 10 years after the ruling in her favor, she came out in favor of the ban on abortion. Now, some of you may ask the why. Why, why do women who support 
abortions and sometimes even get abortions turn around and become proponents of abortion bans. And in the research and in my discussions with individuals who have gone through that process, what I have learned is that sometimes the abortion process can be strenuous and traumatizing. And there's always some form of regret that's associated with the abortion. It's inevitable. So Norman McCorvey, if we're looking at the lines that were drawn, changed sides and became a public figure who supported banning abortion. Interestingly, a fact not known to me is that the case of Roe versus Wade wasn't just about Jane Roe. It was actually a class action challenge to the Texas state criminal laws that prohibited abortion, except in the cases where necessary for the preservation of the life of the mother. If you'll remember from our previous episode, in 1873, Congress passed a law that made it illegal to send obscene, lewd, lascivious, immoral, or indecent publications through the mail. This included publications that discussed methods of abortion and drugs and contraceptive medications in order to ensure an abortion or to prevent pregnancy. It was this law that spurred the fight initially for abortion rights to be restored to the women of America. The Comstock Law began to fall apart in 1965 when the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Griswold versus Connecticut that the banning or distribution of contraceptives to married couples were unconstitutional based on its violation of the couple's implied right to privacy under the Constitution, specifically the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment. Seven years later, in 1972, in the case of Eisenstadt versus Baird, the Supreme Court ruled that banning of contraception distribution to unmarried couples and unmarried adults violated the same right to privacy that married couples were entitled to under the Constitution. Right around that same time, states like Colorado became the first in the nation to broaden legal access to abortion. Eleven other states, including Colorado, broadened that access and increased the number of exceptions that would allow for abortion access in those states. In 1970, Hawaii, New York, and Alaska completely decriminalized abortions, although Hawaii as a state only legalized abortions for its residents. So in the state of Hawaii, if you weren't a resident of Hawaii, you couldn't get an abortion in Hawaii. In 1973, the Supreme Court heard two different cases. These cases focused on the same argument, which was the challenge to states' abortion bans. One, Roe v. Wade, came out of the state of Texas. The other, Doe v. Bolton, came out of Georgia. Both Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton were seen by the same three-judge district court. And in both cases, 
that district court ruled that the laws that were being challenged were unconstitutional because of the violations of a person's Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment rights. So why two cases? Well, you see, Doe versus Bolton was a case brought by a couple who were childless, but sued the state of Georgia on the basis that the law infringed on their rights in the event of a future possibility of contraceptive failure, pregnancy, unpreparedness for parenthood, and impairment of the wife's health. Whereas, in the case of Roe versus Wade, the plaintiff was a single pregnant woman who argued that the anti-abortion laws are fringed on her rights by banning abortions except in situations where medical advice recommended abortion on the basis of preserving the mother's life. Interestingly, in the case of Doe versus Bolton, the district court ruled that the Doe's did not have the right to receive judgment purely based on the speculative nature of their case. You see, they weren't pregnant, they weren't expecting a child, and they hadn't experienced anything that caused them to have their rights infringed at the time. That notwithstanding, the district court did rule that the Georgia law, which at the time was far more generous when it came to determining a right or access to abortion, was on its face unconstitutional because of the violations of the rights to privacy under the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment. So when the cases were both brought to the Supreme Court, they were argued in the same manner. And while both cases were decided on the same day, the decisions were similar yet different. You see, the Supreme Court ruled that the district court was right in their decision that the Doe's did not have substantial right to adjudication simply because of the fact that their case was speculative in nature. But they held the district court's ruling that the Georgia law was unconstitutional on its face. In the case of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court held up the district court's decision and supported the ruling that not only did Roe have a standing to sue, but she also had experienced her rights being infringed. And her rights to abortion were infringed because the Texas state law prevented her from having the right to privacy and the ability to make decisions within her own person and her own lifestyle. Those decisions which were guaranteed to her under the Constitution. You see, none of these decisions actually came out and outright stated that abortion was protected under the Constitution. Instead, they said that the privacy part, the right of a woman to be able to make decisions in the privacy of her own home, that was protected under the Constitution. And no state had the authority to infringe on that right. Curiously, had we been left with only the ruling under Roe versus Wade, there would have been guidelines established by the Supreme Court that stated that the woman's right to determine her path, her decision to carry to term the child that was growing inside of her belly was restricted to the first trimester, specifically 
it was restricted to viability of the child outside of the womb. And that as soon as a child was deemed to be viable outside of the womb, that the state then had the right to step in and protect the interest of the child. Not before then, because according to the Supreme Court, prior to viability, the fetus was not a human being. It was potential life. And because there was no law on the books in the United States that protected potential life or determined potential life to be citizens of the United States or even human beings, that the state had no place to step in. They could only step in after viability. The decision in Doe versus Bolton furthered the constitutional right to abortion by ruling that the state could not limit access if the procedure was sought for reasons of maternal health. The Supreme Court actually defined maternal health as all factors, the physical, the emotional, the psychological, the familial, and the woman's age as being relevant to the well-being of the patient. So while the decision in Roe allowed for state intervention after the first trimester, the decision in Doe allowed for the right to privacy through the entire process, so long as after the first trimester, factors were brought into bear that included the maternal health. I'm going to pause here because many arguments will be made that Doe versus Bolton didn't legalize abortion beyond the first trimester, that Doe versus Bolton only allowed for a medical practitioner to make a decision. But you see, the, the reality here is that the way that our nation works, the way that our laws work, is that an individual who is accused of committing a crime does not have the burden of proof placed on them, but instead the accuser has the burden of proof placed on them. You see, the defendant doesn't have to prove that he or she is not guilty. The defendant doesn't have to prove anything. It's beholden upon the prosecutor. It's beholden upon the individual saying that someone has committed a crime to prove that that crime was committed and it was committed with intent. So when maternal health is so loosely defined as putting together all factors, the physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and age, it becomes hard for a prosecution to prove that a medical practitioner was incorrect in their determination that an abortion was necessary. In short, combined, both the Roe ruling and the Doe ruling effectively made abortion legal from conception all the way through all three trimesters. Almost immediately, once these two decisions were released to the public, they came under attack from pro-life proponents. One major pro-life organization, the National Right to Life Committee, or NRLC, which was originally formed under the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, or the NCCB, became an independent organization and began to take advantage of a newly invigorated pro-life movement as a result of those rulings. 
going so far as to officially make access to abortion a campaign issue in 1974. In 1976, a pro-life congressman by the name of Harry J. Hyde introduced an amendment to the 1977 Fiscal Appropriation for Medicaid. Known today as the Hyde Amendment, it prohibited the use of federal Medicaid funds to pay for abortion procedures, except in cases where the life of the mother was in danger. This, of course, made it hard for mothers and women who were from the poorer side of America to gain access because they no longer had government supplementation to their health care. You see, the Hyde Amendment made it clear that the government didn't see abortion as a method of health care for women. Other attacks to the decisions came from key leadership within pro-life organizations. Men like Victor Rosenblum, the vice chairman for the Americans United for Life, or AUL, and John Noonan, a pro-life law professor at the University of California at Berkeley, compared the ruling that fetuses were not human to the ruling in the Dred Scott case that black people were not considered human. Noonan even went so far as to call for a constitutional amendment called the Human Life Amendment to be added to the Constitution in order to ensure that the Constitution had the teeth it needed to protect human life. Ironically enough, an attempt was made. Two, actually. The first failed to pass through Congress, and the second came in the form of a failed attempt to initiate a constitutional convention. Over the course of the nearly 50 years following the decision in Roe, there were wins and losses on both sides. Pro-life, pro-choice, they all had wins with the Supreme Court, they all had losses with the Supreme Court. Laws were passed in order to achieve loopholes that were found in the decision, and challenges were made to those loopholes. Pro-life organizations lobbied states to pass various forms of laws in order to restrict abortion access. Some came in the form of bans. Those bans included method bans, essentially bans where a type of procedure was prohibited from being conducted, to reason bans, which focused on the reasoning for why a woman wanted to have an abortion. Some of the reasons cited were for racial purposes. And then finally, bans on self-managed abortions, or SMAs. Other laws appeared in the form of restrictions, specifically targeted restriction of abortion providers, or TRAP, requirement of parental involvement in the case of minors, and consent laws laws that required the prospective mother to go through a process by which she had to understand what was occurring during the abortion to her child so that she could make consent only after receiving information. So I want to dig into these bans just a little bit here. Within the method ban, there was one ban that to this day is still very well known. It's one of great controversy and that is a ban on a procedure called dilation and extraction. You see, in a dilation and extraction, the mother has her cervix dilated, and the child, or prospective child, is removed partially from the mother's womb 
and killed before completing the abortion, excuse me, the delivery. In 2001, Congress passed a law that made it illegal for dilation and extraction abortions to occur. And in 2007, the Supreme Court held up that law as constitutional. Many other method bans didn't live up to the same standard. And it's likely that dilation and extraction bans held up under the Supreme Court solely because of the nature by which the abortion was carried out. Also, by the way, that the pro-life movement portrayed dilation and extraction procedures. Reason bans were far less frequent, and they didn't stand up to challenge nearly as well as the partial birth abortion bans, simply because a reason ban delved into the right to privacy. Interestingly, the targeted restriction of abortion providers and the criminalization of self-managed abortions, well, those bans came from a more historic method. If you remember in the first episode, we discussed how the American Medical Association lobbied states and Congress to pass laws that made it harder and harder for midwives to practice maternal health and to be part of the health of a woman during the pregnancies. It made it harder for a midwife to be there and to carry out abortions or to be there for the birth of the child and instead put a woman's health primarily in the hands of male doctors. Well, in that same sense, in that same notion, in that same process, we now have, or we used to have, those targeted restrictions of abortion providers and the criminalization of self-managed abortions. Under the targeted restriction of abortion providers, you had instances such as the case in Missouri where, because of the restrictions, the entire state had one abortion facility because the restrictions were so stringent that abortion facilities just couldn't afford the requirements. They couldn't afford to pay for the licensing. They couldn't afford to pay for the facilities that were required, and thus they had to close because their practice had become illegal under the law. Parental involvement laws, they succeeded as well because in instances where a minor was pregnant, many states held that the minor didn't have the option to make a choice that would benefit them because they weren't of the appropriate mental maturity level and that they didn't understand the decisions that they were making. And so they allowed for the parent to make the decisions for them. And consent laws. Consent laws allowed for some of the most barbarous education processes that we've ever seen. Forcing pregnant women to sit through videos and photos and presentations that showed grotesque images of aborted fetuses that demonstrated just what the baby was going to go through in an abortion and left out anything that made it easier to accept what came with having an abortion. In a 1992 decision, 
from the case of Casey versus Planned Parenthood, the Supreme Court reaffirmed the Roe decision. They ruled that a state cannot ban or interfere with a woman's decision to have an abortion. However, it did uphold laws that required a 24-hour waiting period and parental consent for minors seeking abortions. Now, as we all know, with time and innovation and the rise of technology, our understanding of the world around us, our understanding of our bodies, our understanding of our place in the universe has grown, specifically our understanding of the human body. And through medical innovations and medical capabilities growing, the ability for doctors to detect and understand the growth of the human fetus during pregnancy increased exponentially. As a result, a new form of abortion ban rose in the 2000s and 2010s. This ban was commonly or is commonly known as the fetal heartbeat abortion ban. These laws placed a ban on abortions after the detection of what is known as the fetal heartbeat. Now, opponents to this bill will say that what is deemed to be the fetal heartbeat as early as 15 weeks, actually as early as six weeks, isn't really a heartbeat at all, but just electrical pulses because the heart hasn't formed. Meanwhile, proponents of these bills and proponents of these bans pointed to those electrical impulses as proof that life begins at conception, as proof that if a fetus has a heartbeat, that it's alive and it can thrive and it is a human being and therefore abortion is murder. In 2021, Texas introduced a fetal heartbeat ban, but created an enforcement technique that proved to be difficult to challenge. You see, this ban was also called a vigilante law. The enforcement of this law didn't fall on the state prosecution process, but instead was left up to the individual private citizens of the state of Texas. Essentially, it stated that it was up to the citizens to sue anyone that they suspected of conducting, supporting, facilitating, or having an abortion after the six-week time frame in which a fetal heartbeat was heard. Now, naturally, challenges were made to the Texas law. One such was carried by the Justice Department, and the challenge was made by the Justice Department against the state of Texas. But when it reached the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ruled that the state of Texas wasn't the correct defendant. That because Texas itself was not enforcing the law, that they could not be sued. And that decision allowed for the six-week ban to remain in place. In 2022, the latest culmination in the fight over abortion rights came to a head. And that was a challenge to a Mississippi law that prohibited all abortions with minor exceptions that occurred after 15 weeks. The challenge in that case, now known as Dobbs versus Jackson, resulted in a SCOTUS ruling that completely overturned the ruling in Roe by invalidating the decision and determining that there is no protection for abortion in the Constitution, specifically stating that 
the right to privacy does not cover the right to abortion. We will dig into the Dobbs decision and how it came to be on the last episode of this series. So stay tuned because the end is near. And because of the nature of the final episode, I want to put this out there. If you have thoughts or opinions or questions, or if there is some argument that you want to have brought up in the next episode, please, please feel free to visit www.cranboxpolitics.com. Click on the Contact Us tab and write a message. I'll get it. I'll read it. And maybe I'll include your thoughts into the final episode here. I know I'm not a big podcast, and I know that I have a very small following, but if we all come together and if we all have conversations and if we all communicate our thoughts and our opinions and we find that middle ground, we'll be able to color outside the political lines. If you like this episode and you like the podcast, please, by all means, in your favorite podcast player, give us a rating or shoot over to the website and give us a rating there. If you want to know more information or if you want to find out where my sources were at and want to do your own research, go to www.cranboxpolitics.com and take a look at the blog. That's it for now. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.